Okay, now, I was asked to take about a half hour to talk about myths about the Crusades, really, which is what, what the talk is about. And the problem with this is there are so many myths that you would have to deal with to do this completely that it's going to be pretty much impossible. So I've got a couple of things that I'm going to start with, and then when I run out of time, my half hour, uh, we'll open it up for questions, and if you have any other things you'd like me to address, uh, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, I do entire graduate courses and undergraduate courses just on the Crusades, so I've spent a lot of time with this subject. So anyway, first question, or first statement that you may have heard. The Crusades were an unprovoked assault by a bunch of barbaric Christian fanatics against the peaceful, civilized, and tolerant Islamic world. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Okay, let's, let's start with that one, because this is really hitting at what I think is the heart of most of the misconceptions about the Crusades. What were they about? Were they unprovoked? What were the goals of the Crusades? That sort of thing. And let's start with the idea that they were unprovoked. The history of the relationship between the Muslim world and the Christian world begins really shortly after Mohammed, well, even during Mohammed's lifetime, when he began raiding into Christian territories in the Byzantine Empire. After his death, Muslim armies swept through an area that had been Christianized and had been part of the Byzantine Empire, all through the Middle East, all the way across North Africa. In 700, they crossed, or 711, they crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and invaded what is now Spain, overran that in the space of about a year or two, then invaded France, and by 732, they were within a couple hundred miles of Paris before they were actually stopped and the process of rolling them back started. After that, in the 10th century, Muslim navies crossed the Mediterranean and conquered Sicily and southern Italy. They set up bases in southern France, and they raided from those bases into Germany and other parts of France. They actually, uh, in the 900s, uh, besieged the city of Rome um, and raided it uh, pretty badly, sacked it pretty badly. Then in the 11th century, they invaded Byzantine territory, and in, the, and in 1071, at a battle at a place called Manzikert, they took over a good chunk of that. Modern-day Turkey, pretty much, was conquered by the Muslims after the Battle of Manzikert. I should note that if you try to type Manzikert into your computer, make sure autocorrect is off. <laughs> I had students hand in papers discussing the Battle of Miniskirt once. <laughs> so you, you don't want to do that. Um, anyway, so that's all, all of that is going on within 24 years of the beginning of the Crusades. It's kind of hard to argue that an attack under these circumstances is unprovoked. Let's add to that that pilgrimage from Europe to Jerusalem was an important part of medieval piety. They loved pilgrimage, and pilgrimage to Jerusalem was the gold standard of pilgrimage. Now, Jerusalem had been in Muslim hands, and initially in the Middle East, uh, the Muslim rulers were relatively tolerant of Christians. They were very definitely second-class citizens. Okay, there were a lot of restrictions on them, but many of them actually rose to high office within the Muslim world for the simple reason that they were literate. 
And the Arabs originally really were not a particularly literate people. That will change over time, but initially they weren't. So you end up getting Christians in, as viziers and as other high officials in the Muslim world. About the ninth century, that starts to change. And there's increasing persecution occurring with, uh, within the Christian community. By the time you are in the early 1000s, the caliph, a guy by the name of al-Hakim, actually ordered the Church of the Resurrection, also known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the church that was built over the site of Jesus' tomb, he ordered it leveled. It was destroyed completely. The most important pilgrimage site in, in, in the world for Christians. He did, uh, his successors allowed the Byzantines to rebuild the church, but then a group called the Seljuk Turks converts to Islam. They take over, and they are highly aggressive, they start harassing pilgrims, they start shutting down pilgrimage routes, they start making it very, very difficult to complete the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's worth noting that the Crusaders called themselves pilgrims. They thought of what they were doing as an armed pilgrimage. They were going to Jerusalem. Okay. So let's add that into the unprovoked category. Okay. So the, the fact is that there was a great deal of tension, warfare, that existed between the Muslims and the Christians prior to that, and the vast majority of it was started by the Muslims. And we can add on top of that, like I said, the harassment and the trouble that's added into the pilgrimage process. Okay, so that's the unprovoked. Barbaric, fanatical Christians. That was the next phrase, key phrase in this. Well, there's no question that the Muslim world at this point was more advanced in some respects than Europe was. Uh, the reason for that is that when they conquered a good chunk of the Byzantine territory, they acquired a great deal of Greek learning that was largely lost in the Latin West. Muslim philosophy, Muslim medicine, all of these things that you hear about that they excelled in, they got from the Greeks. And by the way, the people who translated it into Arabic were Christians, because they were the ones who were literate. Okay. Uh, someone like Hunayn ibn Ishaq, a ninth century Christian physician, is responsible for translating, for example, Galen and the entire Greek medical knowledge into Arabic, and his son translated Aristotle. So they got it because of the Christians that they had conquered. But there's no question that they had more advanced knowledge in many areas than the West. I'll give you that point. Were they fanatics? Well, let me ask you a question here. Let's pose a hypothetical, counterfactual history. Let's say that in the 17th century, 18th century, as the British Empire was expanding, they conquered Saudi Arabia, and that they were still occupying Saudi Arabia to this day. Let's suppose that there were British rulers over Saudi Arabia that decided they didn't really like Islam and leveled the Kaaba, which is one of the main uh, holy sites in Islam, the site that you go to when you're going on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. They level it. Now, one of the successors of, of this governor lets them rebuild it, but it's been destroyed once. And further, right now, the British are harassing pilgrims on their way to Mecca, charging them exorbitant fees, um, sometimes stopping them from going altogether. How do you think the Muslim world would respond to that today? Do you think that they would be okay with this? I'm sure they'd lodge a formal protest with the United Nations. 
let, let's ask the next question. Do you think that Muslims would be justified at being really angry and would demand their holy site back? Do you think they would be justified in taking action to take it back? If you answered yes to this, you just said the Crusades were okay. It's not a matter of irrational religious fanaticism, frankly. And this ignores one other point. The Crusades began because the emperor in Constantinople, the Byzantine emperor, asked the pope for help in raising troops so that he could take back the territory that had been taken from him. That's what led to the calling of the Crusade. Hardly exactly falling under the category of a burst of religious fanaticism. As far as the peaceful, tolerant Islamic world goes, peaceful, I don't think so. We've already covered that. Tolerant? Well, yes, for the most part, Jews and Christians, and only Jews and Christians, aside from, you know, among non-Muslims, were allowed to live within the Muslim world. But as I said before, they were clearly second-class citizens. They were subject to persecution, particularly in the immediate uh, time preceding the Crusade. Uh, and, well, for example, they were not allowed to build churches or synagogues. They weren't allowed to repair existing ones without special permission from the ruler. They were not allowed to pray or read the Bible in public, and for that matter, they were not allowed to do it aloud in their houses in case a Muslim walking by would hear them and be offended by it. They were not allowed to testify in court against the Muslim, etc., etc., etc. Okay, there's a whole bunch of rules that were placed on them that restricted their behavior. That's not exactly what we normally think of when we think of tolerance. And so the degree to which the Muslim world was tolerant has been greatly exaggerated. So the point here is that the Crusades were hardly the kind of irrational response by a bunch of, frank, frankly, barbarians moving against the tolerant, peaceful world. They, you can make an argument that there were a long delayed response against Muslim aggression that was done in support of an ally, the Byzantine Empire, that was trying to get back land that had legitimately, that had been taken from them in war. And that it was also designed to allow them to practice their religion by continuing the process of pilgrimage that was very important to medieval piety. So I don't think that first statement actually holds much water. Let's go to the second. The Crusaders were opportunists out to get rich in the Middle East. Now, let's start off with the fact that, have you heard that one? Okay. Let's start off with the fact that that contradicts the first one. Were they a bunch of religious fanatics or were they opportunists out for out to get rich? The two of them, you know, they're mutually exclusive in a lot of ways in terms of motivation. But in terms of the opportunist thing, consider that all of the leaders of the First Crusade, with one exception, were very wealthy, very powerful men in Europe already. They had large territories. They were already really, really rich, influential, and powerful. And they gave all of that up to go to the Middle East on a venture that was difficult, dangerous, that they probably would die during, and that they had no real reason to anticipate that they would be able to get large chunks of territory there. But they're giving up large amounts of territory in Europe. Like I said, there's one exception, a guy by the name of Bohemond, but aside from him, all of the other leaders gave up a lot to go on crusade at great risk. 
That's not the kind of thing a treasure hunter does. What about the average soldier? The average soldier going on crusade mortgaged his land to the hilt. Everything he had went into hock to pay for the crusade. And then when he went on the crusade, he completed his pilgrimage, if at all possible, if he survived that long. And then he spent a little bit of time in Jerusalem and turned around and went back to Europe and tried to straighten out the debts he'd incurred to go on crusade. That's not the action of a treasure hunter. And that, yet that is what the vast majority of crusaders did. So, no, when you actually look at the people involved, when you look at what they did and how they did what they did, what their actual actions were, you don't see treasure hunters. So, I'm sorry, that one doesn't work either. Let's add the idea that relates to this, that the crusader states that were established throughout the Middle East were really Western colonies. Now this was an idea that was promoted by colonial leaders in the 19th century, the 1800s. But if you actually look at what happened in the Crusader states, if anything, they were reverse colonies. What do I mean by that? Colonies generally exist to provide wealth and resources to the home country. That's why you set up a colony. You want to get rich off of it. The Crusader states were a sinkhole for money and men. The only way they survived was to get a lot of wealth and a lot of personnel from Europe constantly coming in to reinforce them because they were losing so much money and so many men. If, any, if this was a colonial effort, it was a major disaster because it worked exactly the opposite of the way colonies go. Yet, there's no indication that anybody was complaining that these were a drain on resources. They were quite willing to pour the resources in because they believed that Jerusalem as the holiest city to Christians needed to be in Christian hands. So if you want to call them colonies, I suppose you can, but you've got to use the word in a really, really strange sense because they work the opposite of the way colonies actually do. Let's go to the next one. The Crusaders were trying to commit genocide against the Muslims. No. Uh, you hear that, that this was some sort of genocidal war, but the fact is none of the popes called for slaughtering the Muslims. They accepted the notion that you'd have to kill Muslims in battle to take Jerusalem back, but the goal was always function, fundamentally political control of Jerusalem. And as far as the Crusaders themselves go, I'd like to read you something. It's the only thing I'm going to read you today. I'd like to read you something that was written by a guy by the name of Ibn Jubair. Ibn Jubair was a Spanish Muslim who had gone on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And on his way back, he traveled through the Crusader states. And when he got back to Spain, he wrote a chronicle about his time. This is what he has to say about going through the Crusader states. Now understand, this is a hostile witness. You will hear him mention cities like Acre, and he'll add immediately, may God destroy it, because he is so upset that these territories are in Christian hands, because he thinks this is just utterly wrong. So this is a hostile witness about the Christians. We moved from Kibnin, may God destroy it, at daybreak on Monday. Our way lay through continuous farms and ordered settlements whose inhabitants were all Muslims living comfortably with the Franks, which is what they called the Crusaders, the Franks. God protect us from such temptation. 
They surrender half their crops to the Franks at harvest time and pay as well a poll tax of one dinar and five kirat for each person. Other than that, they are not interfered with, save for a light tax on the fruit of trees. Their houses and all their effects are left in, to their full possession. All the coastal cities occupied by the Franks are managed in this fashion. Their rural districts, the villages, and farms belonging to the Muslims. But their hearts have been seduced, for they observe how unlike them in ease and comfort are their brethren in the Muslim regions under their Muslim governors. This is one of the misfortunes afflicting the Muslims. The Muslim community bewails the injustice of a landlord of its own faith and applauds the conduct of its opponent and enemy, the Frankish landlord, and is accustomed to justice from him. <laughs> On the same Monday, we alighted at Farmstead at a parasang dis distant from Acre. Its headman is a Muslim appointed by the Franks to oversee the Muslim workers in it. He gave generous hospitality to all members of the caravan, assembling them great and small in a large room in his house, and giving them a variety of foods and treating all with liberality. We were amongst those who attended this party and passed the night there. On the morning of Tuesday, the 18th of September, we came to the city of Acre, may God destroy it. We were taken to the common house, which is a khan, that is a building, prepared to accommodate the caravan. Before the door are stone benches spread with carpets, where, the, where are the Christian clerks of the customs with their ebony inkstands ornamented with gold. They write Arabic, which they also speak. The merchants deposited their baggage there and lodged in the upper story. The baggage of any who had no merchandise was examined in case it contained concealed and dutiable merchandise, after which the owner was permitted to go his way and seek lodgings where he would. All this was done with civility and respect and without harshness and unfairness. We lodged beside the sea in a house which we rented from a Christian woman and prayed God Most High to save us from all dangers and help us to security. This is not a description of people who are after genocide. You will note that he said that the Christians actually treated the Muslim peasantry better than the Muslims did in their territories, that the Muslim peasants were happy to be under the Christians, and that the Muslims who were under, uh, their, uh, under Muslim overlords were bewailed their fate and wished they were under Christians. This is not, again, the kind of thing that one expects if this is all about religious hostility and genocide. It, the facts just simply aren't there. And remember, Ibn Jubair is a hostile witness. He actually sees what the Christians are doing as sleazy and underhanded seduction of the Muslim peasantry from their legitimate overlords. Um, a related uh, subject here on when it comes to genocide is the idea that when the Christians took the city of Jerusalem in 1099, there was a massive slaughter. This one is true. However, we have to be very, very careful about how we understand what happened there. Uh, there are two points that are relevant here. The first of them is that by the rules of war in this period, which were observed by Christians, Muslims, and frankly, everybody else, if you called upon a city to surrender in a siege, you're going to lay siege to the city, you're going to attack the city, if you call on the city to surrender and it surrenders, the people and their goods are sacrosanct. If you refuse to surrender and you make the attacking army go through all the trouble of taking the city, all bets are off. Everyone's lives in the city are legally forfeit and all of their goods are as well. This is the universal rule of law of war in the period. 
We may not like it, but that's how it was done. And when the Crusaders managed to break into Jerusalem, there was a pretty large-scale slaughter that took place. The second point we need to note here, though, is that the extent of the slaughter is greatly exaggerated, and it is greatly exaggerated in the Crusaders' own chronicles. How do we know this? It says that the streets of Jerusalem... Now, they were... You know, they, at this period, when they're writing these chronicles and they're describing the taking of the city, they think this is a great and glorious thing. And they talk about how the streets ran with blood up to the fetlocks of the horses, really kind of high up, up above their hooves. The fact of the matter is, that is impossible. <laughs> Just to put it bluntly, you'd have to exsanguinate the entire population of the Middle East, not just Jerusalem, <laughs> to get that much blood in the streets. It didn't happen. We know that. Why do they describe it this way? Well, part of it is just sort of the customary practice of greatly exaggerating things. Okay? When you have a victory, it always, it's always a great and glorious victory, where you slaughter thousands and thousands of the enemy, even if there were only ten casualties. You know, this is the way the chronicles of the period work. The other part of it is they were very intentionally describing it as an apocalyptic event. The imagery almost sounds like something out of the book of Revelation because in their minds, this was a genuinely apocalyptic event. They were retaking Jerusalem for Christianity, for Christ. And what that meant, among other things, was that it was setting the groundwork for Jesus' return. Because, because it says in the Bible, Jesus is going to come back to Jerusalem. Is it conceivable that Jesus is going to return to a city in the hands of his enemies? No. So, by taking Jerusalem, they were actually, in their minds, setting up for the potential of Christ's return. And it is no wonder that they used apocalyptic imagery to describe it. So, yes, there was slaughter. But, yes, it was also greatly exaggerated. Next, the Crusades were a prelude, this is related, the Crusades were a prelude to the Holocaust, since the Pope ordered Christians to slaughter non-believers. And that meant, of course, the Jews. No. First of all, the Pope never gave a license to the Crusaders to go out, or to anybody, to simply go out and slaughter non-believers, and particularly not to slaughter the Jews. In fact, according to medieval Catholic theology, it was important for the Jews to continue in place for reasons which I don't need to get into. They're not ones we would embrace. But to the, to the medieval Catholic mind, to the theologians, the presence and existence of the Jews was important. And there was no, never ever any, any call to slaughter them. The grain of truth in this is that during the First Crusade, there were a bunch of people who were not part of the official crusading armies who decided to join them anyway, and they went off on their own. They were frankly a rabble, a mob, consisting of a lot of um, runaway peasants and failed knights, and they did attack Jewish communities in the Rhineland. It's worth noting that under many circumstances, the local bishops opposed this and tried to protect, protect the Jews, up to the point where they even invited the Jewish communities into the Episcopal Palace to protect them. Didn't always work, but they at least tried. 
So there were violent pogroms against the Jews done by an offshoot of the Crusaders in the First Crusade, not by the Crusaders themselves. And the attacks on the Jewish community were roundly condemned by the Pope and the local Christian authorities. Not exactly an official part of the Crusade. It happened. There is an, again, there's a grain of truth here. The other part of this, though, that needs to be noted is that the attacks on the Jewish community during the Middle Ages themselves were known, of course, to the Jewish community, but most of them simply wrote this off as an aberration. They didn't see this as, as part of any kind of systematic attempt to destroy them. And it's only in retrospect, after the Holocaust, that you can look back and say, oh, see, they were always doing this. It's not really true. They weren't always doing it. There was one set of incidents which were condemned and should be condemned roundly by all the church authorities, but it isn't part of a systematic plan or program that continues after that. It was a rather bizarre aberration in the middle of things. Okay. Uh, last myth. We have just about enough time. The Crusades marked the beginning of 900 years of animosity between the Middle East and the European world. Well, I would suggest, first of all, that the animosity starts when the Muslim world invades the Christian world 300 years before the Crusades. That's one thing that's kind of worth noting. But it is also worth noting that the way Crusades are viewed, the way the Crusades to the Middle East are viewed in different periods of history depends entirely on the relationship between the Middle Eastern world and Europe in, and in terms of the balance of power between the two. So, the Crusader states lasted, if I remember right, something like 174 years and then they were gone. From that point on, in the Muslim world, the tendency was to view the Crusades as a rather strange little aberration. These Europeans tried to take Jerusalem from us, but they failed. We got it back. No big deal. That is how Muslim historiography looked at the Crusades until the 19th century. In Europe, meanwhile, no one even thinks of criticizing the Crusades. Well, there are occasional people who say that this was really a mis misguided notion. That's not the way you get Jerusalem back. That's not the way you win Muslims to Christ, which is a better way of doing it. You do get some people saying that. But for the most part, there's no real criticism of the Crusades per se through the 17th century. And the reason for that is that through the 17th century, the Muslim world continued to be a threat to Europe. The last full-scale Muslim military invasion of Europe was turned back from, from the city of Vienna in a battle starting on September 11, 1683. That's about 50 years after Wethersfield was founded, to put this in perspective. The Muslim world was still trying to conquer Europe. And by the way, the date September 11th is important mm -hmm. because the siege of Vienna was broken in a battle that began on that day, and you can make a good argument that bin Laden picked September 11th for the attack, basically to say we're picking up where we left off. Okay. So while the Muslim world is a threat, nobody in Europe thinks to criticize the Crusades. As you move into the 18th century, the Muslim world is falling further and further behind. European colonization is taking off. European technology is, over, is going way beyond where the Muslim world is. 
with the net result that, and then on top of that, by the way, you also have the Enlightenment, which is uh, basically a secularizing, really anti-Christian movement, um, particularly in France. In that context, you begin getting people who start criticizing the Crusades because the Muslim world is no longer seen as a threat. 19th century, colonialism really takes off, the neo-imperialism it's sometimes called, where the Western world really begins to dominate basically about 90% of the land surface uh, of the earth. You get European leaders coming in and giving speeches in the Middle East in which they're talking about all of the greatness of European colonialism and they begin associating it with the Crusades. The Crusades were a first step toward where we are today. It wasn't, but that's what they say. Their rhetoric is then picked up in the Muslim world who then say, oh, these Christians in Europe have had it in for us for the past 800 years. Not true, as we saw the Crusades were anything but colonies, the Crusader states. But the rhetoric of, of certain individuals who were leaders in the European world, their rhetoric about the Crusader states being proto-colonies creates the, the sense in the Muslim world that everything that has happened since then, the European domination of the Middle East and all of those kinds of things, that the Crusades were the beginning of it, which is why to this day, groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda refer to any Western presence in the Middle East as Crusaders, including, by the way, ironically enough, Israel. Think about that one. So the fact is that the rhetoric surrounding Crusades, the rhetoric surrounding colonization, the rhetoric surrounding whether or not this is a good or bad thing, really depends on the perception of the relationship between the Middle East and the West. In the Middle East, like I said, in the Muslim world, for most of history, since the Crusades, they were seen as this bizarre blip in their history that had no significance whatsoever. When they started falling behind, when the West became clearly dominant, they started seeing the Crusades as the first step of Western domination. In the West, while the Islamic world is still a threat, nobody or very few people really question the Crusades. But after they become dominant, you get an internal Western critique about the Crusades, and then on top of it, they start seeing it as, as colonization. Add to that with the decolonial movement that occurs after World War II, when European states divest themselves of their colonies, or are, are, or are divested of their colonies. With that, the Crusades come into even worse light because colonization is seen to be a bad thing. So that's where, where almost where it leaves us uh, in terms of how we view the Crusades. The one thing we have to add to this is September 11th. Because after September 11th, the conflict between the Middle Eastern Islamic world and the West suddenly got hot again with the net result that although crusader rhetoric is still very common in the Middle East as an anti-Western trope, in the Western world, after September 11th, there has been a movement to reassess the Crusades, to start asking questions like, you know, we've been highly critical of them. Is that entirely a fair and balanced way of approaching them? 
And so you're getting a number of historians who are saying increasingly things like, you know what, they weren't unprovoked. You know what, there really was a reason for them. You know what, the West wasn't entirely at fault here. You're beginning to get a reassessment of the Crusades. But again, it's because of September 11th. It's in light of this renewed conflict that has emerged, a civilizational conflict in many ways, that this reassessment is beginning. It's not universally accepted, but there is a growing movement, and you're seeing more and more people who are arguing that. Okay, so that's a handful of myths about the Crusades. I have gone just shy of 35 minutes, so I overshot a bit. Uh, are there any questions or comments? Anything that I didn't cover that you want me to cover? The crusade we hear the most about, of course, is the Fourth Crusade, right. the sacking of Constantinople. Actually, I would argue the Third Crusade is the one you hear the most about, but let's talk about the Fourth Crusade. Sure, sure. Okay, what happened in the Fourth Crusade? In the Fourth Crusade, um, the short version of it is the crusade got diverted. It was originally intended to go try to liberate Jerusalem because Jerusalem had fallen by then. It got diverted, and instead it attacked the Christian city of Constantinople and captured that instead. And that was the only thing the crusade accomplished. Um, and by the way, that action sealed the dislike and distrust between the Orthodox Christians and the Roman Catholic Christians to this state. Okay, what happened during the Fourth Crusade? There are a lot of different ways of, uh, uh, that the Fourth Crusade has been interpreted. The narrative, the best way I can reconstruct it, is there were a number of leaders of, for the Crusade, among them a guy named Villardouin, who wrote a complete chronicle of the Crusade, that went to Venice and contracted with the city of Venice to provide transport to the Middle East. Venice was a republic, had a maritime empire, but it was governed as a republic, and it was really run by the merchants. Um, it was a city that it was a trading city, and the people who were in charge were the people who had all the money and were, were involved in trade. The Doge of Venice was a guy by the name of Enrico Dandolo. Dandolo was an old man, all the Doges were old. He negotiated with the Crusaders to essentially divert the entire Venetian economy to build this fleet of ships that the Crusaders told them they would need. The Crusaders, however, greatly um, overestimated the number of people that they would have. So when they showed up, they showed up with much smaller armies and couldn't pay for the ships. The entire Venetian economy had been shifted over to building these ships. The net result is, now I think Dondolo knew that this was what was going to happen. And it was a rather dangerous thing for him to agree to this because not long before this, a doge had been assassinated for making a major mistake economically for the city. So, but I think Dondolo had, had something in mind here because what he did is he told the crusaders, okay, we'll defer your debt, but you're going to have to do some things for us. There's the city of Zara over there on the Dalmatian coast owned by the King of Hungary. The Venetians said, we really properly own Zara. The King of Hungary took it from us. So if you'll get it back for us, this rebellious city, we'll defer your debt. So the Crusaders were over a barrel, so they attacked a Roman Catholic city and took it. This got the entire crusade excommunicated by the Pope. Then, a guy who had been whose father had been the emperor in Constantinople, but he had been deposed, 
this, this young guy, Alexius, whose father had been deposed, showed up at the Crusaders and said, hey, if you will put me back on the throne in Constantinople, I'll give you the Byzantine army, I'll give you the Byzantine navy, I'll pay you a lot of gold, and we'll go take Jerusalem. So they then went to Constantinople, put him on the throne, he wasn't able to deliver, he got assassinated. The crusade tried to attack the city by the land walls. That doesn't work in Constantinople. Without gunpowder, you never take the land walls. So the Venetians attacked it from the sea, and they managed to land a, basically a drawbridge from the top of the mast onto the wall, got a couple of soldiers in, they went out, opened a gate, and then the Crusader army went in and sacked the city. And made, declared that it was now Roman Catholic. That got the excommunication lifted by the Pope. So that's what happened in the Fourth Crusade. Um, I am sure that the Venetians knew full well that the Crusaders weren't going to be able to pay them, planned to divert them to Zara. They've got down their own private army. They can make it do whatever they want to. I do not think they had any way of planning what happened to Constantinople. I think that was more or less opportunism that came up. And there's no question that this was a major, major blunder on the part of the Crusaders, in a lot, of, in, just on a whole lot of different ways. Um, so that's that's the Fourth Crusade. That's really essentially what happens. It's interesting that uh, the way Rodney Stark characterizes the Crusades, he develops a uh, a narrative where there's a consistent pattern of treachery on the part of the Byzantines. <laughs> in promising support to the Crusaders and never delivering it, even betraying them, going behind their backs and uh, making treaties with the cities that the Crusaders are getting ready to conquer. And then it's almost like by the time the Fourth Crusade comes around, and here again you have this Byzantine coming in and say, hey, put me back on the, on the throne, as you pointed out. And the, when the, the uh, people in Constantinople says, yeah, this isn't happening, and get rid of him and tell the, the Crusaders to take a hike, they finally have said, okay, we've had enough for second. The city almost want to cheer for them, assuming the Stark's uh, yeah. characterization is accurate. So it's, it's interesting that you know, we get the fuller picture. Yeah. Let, let me comment on Stark here. Stark's book called God's Battalions is an okay book in a lot of ways, but he engages in way too much special pleading, it seems to me, for the Crusaders. Uh, there's no question that tensions started with Constantinople in the First Crusade. Um, going all through all the details would take us too long here, but there was tension in the First Crusade. It grew higher in the Second Crusade, still higher in the Third Crusade. There's no love lost between these two sides. There's no question about that. How much of it was Byzantine treachery? That was certainly seen as treachery on the part of the Roman Catholics um, that are in on the Crusade. But from the Byzantine perspective, the Crusaders were untrustworthy, unreliable allies, and so on as well. There's a lot of blame that, that you could place on both sides of it, and I don't really think Stark is taking a particularly balanced approach when it comes to understanding things from the Byzantine side. Like I said, I think he's engaging in a little too much special pleading to defend the Crusaders. Glenn, uh, you criticize Stark, which is great, but uh, it's fine. What are some books that would be written for laymen that would be good out in the Crusades? The best one out there, and I, I hate to name this one, 
but it's called God's War by Christopher Tyerman. And the reason why I hesitate to name that one, it is, like I said, the best, is that it's 800 some odd pages. Um, Tyerman does a really, really good job, but it is really, really long. It's not Matt? a light read. 800 pages, it's not. Yeah, it, 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 literally the book takes up about this much space on my bookshelf. I mean, it, it is, it is a, a pretty hefty book. What about Madden? Um, the, there are other good ones out there. Um, Madden's books on the Crusade are really good. Jonathan Riley Smith's books on the Crusades are really good. Those are the ones I would recommend the most right now. And Smith's books are thinner. Yes. Yes, they are. Yeah, Madden's are thinner too. Yes. So th those would be probably more accessible. In back first. Um, thank you so much for your lecture. It's very helpful. Apologetically, in the world, I think I'm going to remember what you said, and I think it's very useful. And I think it, it can almost come to the point of saying this was a just war kind of thing to liberate, you know, enslaved Christians. I, I'm with that. But I do have a question. I wonder. Do you see anything in the literature of the times that this could be a theological mistake? Now, for, as Reformed yes. people, most Reformed people would say, I mean one of them, there is no theological significance to the earthly Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. We're about the Jerusalem above, that's our mother. So, there, other than a nostalgia kind of thing, there isn't an earthly significance. But I just wonder, was anybody wrestling with that at all during that time? Yeah, very few, uh, nobody's really questioning the issue of pilgrimage. Everybody believes pilgrimage is a good and valuable thing to do. So the earthly Jerusalem, in their minds and in their theology, matters. However, there are people who are critiquing the Crusades for other reasons. Uh, someone like the Francis of Assisi, for example. St. Francis actually went to the Sultan in Alexandria to entreat for peace. The Sultan actually, interestingly enough, listened to Francis respectfully and sent him home in peace, giving him a large amount of gold in the process, which is really funny because Francis lived a life of absolute poverty and didn't know what to do with the gold once he got it. He ended up giving it all away. So you've got Francis of Assisi, but there's also a much more interesting guy in my mind on this, on this front, a guy by the name of Ramon Lal, uh, who was from Iberia, who believed that the proper way of handling this was not conquest, but was missions. And Ramon Lal will actually attempt to begin a, a conversion movements among the Muslims. Doesn't work real well, but he's at least trying it. You know, so you do get a few people who are critiquing it, not so much from the perspective of pilgrimage, but more from oh, not an entirely pacifist perspective, but from the perspective that war is not the best solution here. Brian. Hi, Professor. Um, <laughs> thanks for giving the talk. Uh, so my interest in that is an economic side question. Mm -hmm. So I know Muslims are not able to charge interest very much like Jews with usury. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming Christians with usury laws. Uh, when uh, we took the Jerusalem, uh, was there anything that we brought along with us economically? Were the, were the bankers from um, Venice, were they able to bring over any in inventions into the Middle East that they hadn't seen before? There is, there's a lot of cross-cultural contact that does take place during this period. 
more things are brought from the Byzantine Empire and the Muslim world into Europe than the other direction, but there are some things that go that way. Um, most of these relate to military technologies. Okay, the Europeans actually change the way Muslim warfare is conducted in the Middle East after encountering the way the Franks fought, they adapt. I mean, there, there are things that go in both directions. The economic consequences of the crusade really revolve around two things. First of all, um, the earliest invention of what we would call banking is really connected to an organization called the Knights Templar who were founded originally to protect pilgrims going to the Middle East. And as they developed priories around Europe, what would happen is you could bring your money to one Templar priory, they would give you a, a, a sealed receipt for it, you could then leave it with them, go to the next Templar priory, turn in the receipt and get the money there. So it was like branch banking. Okay. And the idea here is it, it's safer, if you, they're, they're trying to protect pilgrims, it's safer if you're going to the Middle East not to carry all your money with you. From there, the first commercial banks opened, and they always opened, I, was, uh, I actually had a grad student who traced this out, they always opened in places that had Templar priories, the earliest banks that we know of open in direct competition to the Templars. People looked at this and said, there's money to be made here. So banking actually develops out of crusader institutions, deposit banks. The second thing that happens is as a result of crusader contact with the Middle East, it changes the structure of demand in Europe, and in particular for spices. The Europeans didn't have a lot of spices during, prior to the first crusade. After the crusade, they picked up a taste for Asian spices, and as a result, there was a big push to import spices into Europe. Leads to a large-scale spice trade and indirectly, ultimately, leads to Columbus, but that's a whole different story. So you mentioned that this was for setting up the groundwork of Jesus' return. In um, their mind. In their mind. Now, um, about this time, we're turning the millennium, about the one year 1,000. Did that come into play? Um, you know, there's that passage in... Uh, Revelation 24, about uh, for a thousand years, and then Christ returns. Yeah. Uh, people anticipating Christ's return at the year 1000. Okay. I have heard a lot of historians say that that was the case. I have yet to see it in a medieval author. And I think the reason is simple. Dating in this period was done by the regnal date of the king in the 17th year of Charles VI of France. Okay. In the 20th year of Louis VII of France. There's no unified system of dating. Mm -hmm. With the net result, I don't know many people at all who would have even been aware of when the year 1000 hit. So I have my real doubts that there was any millennial panic around the year 1000. Like I said, I've read a lot of historians who've said it, but not one of them has given me a good footnote. So there was no Y1K bug then, huh? Yeah, there was no Y1K. <laughs> so, so I have my doubts about that. Other questions, yeah. You mentioned the, the European critique of the Crusades starting in the 19th century and the days of colonization. Were those people that were can you just explain a little more? Is it, were those critique 
critics of the Crusades also critical of the colonization? Okay. Are they kind of doing yeah. it with the, Let's take the three steps. First step, 18th century. The Crusades start being critiqued by Enlightenment thinkers. 19th century, after Europe is dominating the Middle East and pretty much everything else, in a rather self-congratulatory tone, some European leaders start talking about the Crusades as the first step to getting where they are now. They're very proud of this fact. 20th century, post-World War II especially, the movement of decolonization takes place. Decolonization means that the colonies were a bad idea. That merges with the Enlightenment critique of the Crusades so, because they are, they are colonies, that's wrong, that's bad, we're decolonizing now. And further, it's this expression of religious fanaticism like the Enlightenment thinkers thought it was. So decolonization and the Enlightenment both merge to create the modern critique of the Crusades. The people in the 19th century who compared the Crusades to colonies of their day were doing it, like I said, very proud of this fact. Okay, so there's actually several phases. So there's, there wasn't a critique that was anti-crusade, pro-colonization? No. Okay. Jonathan Riley Smith, I mentioned Riley Smith is one of the really good historians of the Crusades. Riley Smith has done really the best work at analyzing how the different Crusades were viewed. Um, and I'd really recommend his work to you if you're interested in really tracing how all that fits together. Brian again. So the uh, military revolution, the uh, 1300s, we're seeing gunpowder right, start to come in. Is it after the I mean, Is there an influence of some of the chemistry that's taking place in the Middle East moving back over to, uh, uh, to Europe, of them just developing uh, some of this? The Europeans, I think I, know what, I think I understand what you're asking. Yeah. The Europeans develop superior firearms to the ones that are used within the Middle East. As a matter of fact, when the Ottoman Turks take Constantinople, they take it by attacking the land walls. And the land walls of Constantinople are impregnable unless you've got gunpowder. If you've got people manning it and you're, you, the attacker doesn't have gunpowder, you cannot take Constantinople by land. The Ottomans took Constantinople because of gunpowder. But interestingly enough, the gunpowder weapons were actually supplied by German mercenaries. It was German mercenary artillery fighting for the Ottomans that caused Constantinople to fall in 1453. Interestingly enough, the Germans offered their services to the emperor in Constantinople. He couldn't afford their fee. The Muslims could. So they fought for the Muslims and destroyed took down the walls of Constantinople, which today, by the way, is known as Istanbul. Istanbul is the Turkish mispronunciation of Constantinople. Is that, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah Fourth Crusade was, was sealed the separation of the East and Western churches. Yeah. Uh, and that resulted in the and the creedal clause, the filioque clause. Okay, that's earlier. Okay, so could you, could you trace that out a little bit? Okay. Um, in the Nicene Creed, the original text of the Nicene Creed, a part of it reads, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, 